So. After a one-week pause, uh, we now return to the book of John, and this is the third and final week that we'll actually be spending together in chapter 3. Uh, if you remember a few weeks back, uh, when we started this chapter, we found ourselves in the middle of an interaction, this interaction, conversation between Jesus and a leader of the Jews whose name was Nicodemus. Uh, you see, Nicodemus and uh, the religious leaders, the religious elite of the time, they had this very clear doctrine, this clear theology, this clear view of how God's people would be saved. But not only that, um, who their Savior would be or, or what that Savior would, would look like. But now uh, we see here comes Jesus on the scene. Jesus claiming to be the Savior, his followers claiming him to be the Christ, but there's a problem. Jesus doesn't fit their expectations. And so Jesus will go on in this conversation to say these radical things like, uh, if you want eternal life, you need to be born again. He says to Nicodemus, you want eternal life? You want to live forever? You want fullness of joy? You need to look at me. You need to look at what I've done or what I'm doing or what I've come to do through my life, my death, and my resurrection. And then John, our writer, uh, tells us why Jesus actually chose to do this, to bring us eternal life, why he offers us salvation, and why Jesus came to die in our place on the cross. He says, really simply, because Jesus loves us. Because Jesus loves us. And that was our message for Easter, right? For God so loved uh, the broken world, for God so loved the lost world, that he gave Jesus for us. And now, in the text that we're going to look at today, we're going to see another major dialogue take place. But this time, it's not between Jesus and Nicodemus, but between John the Baptist, a character that we've been introduced to previously, and his followers, his disciples. And it's in this dialogue that uh, we're going to receive this, this profound, this, this incredible lesson in humility. Uh, we're going to learn that Jesus is central to God's saving plan and that Jesus has always been the main point of the story, always. So, again, if you have your Bible, look with me starting at verse 22. Uh, this is what John says. After this, Jesus and his disciples went into the Judean countryside and he remained there with them and was baptizing. John also was baptizing at Anon near Salim because water was plentiful there. And people were coming and being baptized. And then there's a little parathetical statement. It says, for John had not yet been put into prison. Okay? So we see here that there's this shift, a transition takes place here, there's a transition statement that Jesus has now left his interaction with Nicodemus and he goes into the Judean countryside. And with that, we find Jesus and his disciples are baptizing people. We're actually told in the beginning of John 4 that Jesus isn't actually the one baptizing, it's his disciples who are baptizing in the name of Jesus, but they're there together baptizing. They're putting people in the water. They go to this place, it says in the text, because there's a plentiful amount of water, putting people in the water and then putting people underneath the water as a sign of repentance. And then we also see here that John the Baptist is doing the same. Imagine that, John the Baptist baptizing. Okay, doing what his namesake is for, right? And with that, okay, that information, we see this little side note given to us. The text says that John is not yet in prison. I think there's something more to that, but really the primary reason that is stated is John, the apostle who's writing this, just wants to set a timestamp for us. 
This is a, this is a marker. Uh, it's meant to tell us that Jesus has not yet entered into his Galilean ministry, which we'll see is going to begin in chapter 4. So this is just a time stamp between Jesus and Nicodemus. Now we're in a different phase of Jesus's ministry, still though very early on before the Galilean ministry. That's the point. So we enter into this scene, and you can just picture this with me now. We have Jesus baptizing with his disciples on one side. And then we have John just a little bit north of where that's taking place, very close, but just north, John baptizing with his disciples. And what are we made to do with this? What should we do with this? Um, they're baptizing separately. So are they working together? Or is this like two dueling ministries? Is there a competition here? It's like, hey, first to 100 baptisms wins, right? Thankfully, thankfully, our writer John shows us what this is all about. And so we see that beginning in verse 25. It says this, now a discussion arose between some of John's disciples and a Jew over purification. And they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who is with you across the Jordan, to whom you bore witness, look, he is baptizing, and all are going to him. So we learn here that this conversation, this discussion breaks out between John's disciples and another Jewish man. Perhaps he was a scholar of sorts. And he wants to have this conversation with them in regards to uh, the teaching or the doctrine of purification. And unfortunately, we're not told any more details uh, about this conversation. But most likely, um, what this is in regards to, it's a talk centered on Jewish ritual. And the comparison between ceremonial washing, which we see all over the Old Testament, and the baptisms that John the Baptist is now performing here. You can imagine there's a little bit of a confusion, right? This guy just wants to know, right? He's gone through the ceremonial washings. Like, for example, at the wedding, right? You're doing all these purification washings, and you know, you're making yourself clean. And so this guy wants to know, hey, who is this guy, John, right? He, who's telling us that we need to wash ourselves again, right? We, we've already been following the Old Testament. We're already doing all the rituals, following the law, doing the purification rites. And now he's telling us, get into this body of water. He's going to hold our, hold our necks and put us under and say, okay, you're forgiven for your sins. Right? What is all this about? What's so different about him? Or are these two things in contradiction to another? What is he teaching here? We don't know the outcome of that. But what we do know, what we do know, is that it appears that this dialogue between John's disciples and this man throws off John's disciples a little bit. Okay? It gets them to think about John the Baptist, this person that they have chosen to follow, this person that they have devoted their lives to do ministry with. And so, after that conversation, they go together and approach John the Baptist, and they say to him, and I'll just paraphrase it, it was already said, something like this, hey, uh, John, uh, did you notice, like, just over there, that guy Jesus, the guy that you told us all about, we can't help but notice that he is also baptizing just like us, but there's a little bit of a difference. They said, everyone is going to him. All are going to him. Now, we have to be very clear on what just took place because it's easy to read past it, particularly in the English. This here is not just these guys making an observation they're not saying, oh, hey, John, did you just so happen to notice Jesus over there baptizing too? Right, thumbs up, right? That's not what's happening. What's happening here is that there is apparently some growing frustration. 
See, these guys have left everything. Again, they've left everything to follow John. They are loyal to him. They've defended him. Again, we just saw them do that. Like to the Jewish guy who approached them over purification. But now they're looking across the river and they are wondering, what exactly have we done all of this for? Sure, some people are going or coming to us, listening to us, listening to John, and their lives are being changed. Like they're being baptized as well. But apparently, it's nothing compared to what's happening with Jesus and his followers, his growing number of disciples. So, this is not intrigue over Jesus' success. They're actually upset by it. They're bothered by Jesus' growing ministry, and they confront John about it. What we actually have here in this text is sin. Uh, It's the sin of covetousness or envy. It's this deep and dark sin. It's evil. It's not talked about enough. Uh, But it's one that I'm sure we all struggle with. Um, Some of us uh, even perhaps struggle with this every single day, covetousness. It comes when we resent the success of other people. It's something that comes up out of us when we see someone else lifted up or put in a place that we think we deserve, or we think we deserve to be lifted up. So it's the, it's the person, the coworker who gets the job promotion and you don't. It's the person who uh, gets into the really good university you've been trying for and, and you didn't. It's the person who's, um, whose parents maybe um, have a lot of assets or wealth and so take them on family vacations and you see that in Instagram and man, I really want that, or I desire that, or I deserve that, right? It's the person who, um, it's the person who sees their friend, like, get into a brand new relationship, and man, I deserve to get in a relationship. I'm way better than her. I'm way better than him. It's the person who, who sees someone um, have a child, maybe, and all, like, yeah, I'm so happy for you, in the back of your head, you're not, right? Um, you're envious, Or how one theologian puts it, envy. He says, envy is resentment of someone else's good plus the itch to despoil that person of it. Envy is pure evil, as toxic and sickening to the envier as to everyone else. Envy poisons the envier and introduces gangrene into his own soul. In other words, it will eat you from the inside out. Envy is against all virtues. Envy is against all goodness. So you might say that envy is actually the opposite of love. And I don't think that that's, uh, that's actually a coincidence. We just found out why Jesus came and the root of his ministry. Now we see human beings doing their ministry, and it's the opposite. It's the opposite of love. Because, to use scripture, envy does not rejoice with those who rejoice or mourn with those who mourn. Instead, envy actually rejoices when others mourn. And they mourn when others are rejoicing. And therefore, we can rightfully say that envy is always rooted in pride. This is what we see with John's disciples here in the text. This is their error, the error of their ways. We learn here that their fundamental approach to their calling actually was off target. It was off base. But thankfully, thankfully we have John the Baptist. (laughs) And so John the Baptist steps in and we see the foundation of his calling is very, very sure. And so he corrects them, but also in turn, he teaches us how to be humble. And I want to show that to you. So he says in verse 27, John the Baptist responds. He says, a person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. See, his followers had lost sight of the fact that this was John's role in this whole ordeal. Everything about John 
his role, his position, his authority was a gift of God. John, they've forgotten, John was useful simply because of the fact that God chose him to be useful. God chose to make him useful. John had a following. He was revered, looked up to. Why? Because God chose to give him a role in his redemptive plan. John is saying to his followers, guys, I'm not the point of the story here. In fact, I am nothing without God. Everything I am and all I've done for his kingdom is a gift. And listen, because John actually understands that. He actually understands that. We, 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 we see here that there is, there is this piece about John, and it's, it's hard for me to comprehend, um, even being someone who's in full-time ministry. There's this piece within John when his popularity actually starts to diminish. Uh, when the number of his followers, people coming to listen to him teach, when they start to dwindle, there's this odd piece. And actually, we know, I think partly, this is because John knew this was coming. Right? He says in verse 28, he says, You yourselves bear me witness that I said to you, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. To sum that up, he says, I've been trying to tell you guys, you're not listening. I've been trying to show you. I've been trying to give you a heads up. I told you this was coming. So what did you expect? That's what he's saying. Why are you so surprised? I am not the light of the world. I'm just here to bear witness to the light. We were told that in John chapter 1. And in effect, what he's also saying to them, this is conviction. It's a rebuke. He's also saying, because you chose to follow me, the one who's bearing witness to the light, this is what you've signed up to do as well. This is your role. None of this is about us. It's about him, that guy over there. You could say Jesus is the main character, right? And to elaborate on this, John moves into this very simple analogy to show them his mind to show them his perspective. Look at what he says to them. He says, the one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. And then he says, therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. So this is pretty simple, okay? Pretty simple. Not surprising. John says here, we all know this, at the wedding, you have the bride and you have the groom. And they are, and meant to be, the focus of the wedding. Friends are there too. So in this illustration, the friend of the groom is there, Let's call him, uh, for Western sake, this will be a little bit diff more difficult for those of you who have only been to Korean weddings. But for those of us from a Western context, let's call this friend the best man. Okay? Best man at the wedding. And he, he being friends with the groom, he's excited for the groom. He's excited for this endeavor. He's there to celebrate this wedding. Right? Easy enough, Right? But what's the point? Well, in this analogy, John is saying to his disciples, I'm the friend. I'm the best man at the wedding. And his point is this. You guys know, the wedding is not about the best man. Some might like to make it about themselves, maybe. But it's not about them. Like, listen, if you are asked to be, guys, if you're asked to be the best man at a wedding... I've had the honor to do that once. It's a really, actually, it's a really simple job, okay? Simple. You're there for the groom, period. Uh, you're there to help him, and you're there to make him look good, even if it means you've got to make yourself look bad, right? Simple. You need tissues, groom? Boom, tissues, right? It's my pocket. Need someone to hold your rings? Got you. 
Someone to, because you don't want to crease your suit, someone to get down on their knees and tie your shoes. I did it. I did that. Tie your shoe. No problem. Tie your shoe. He was a, like one of my best friends for over 20 years. So it was a little easier for me to do that. But yeah, man, I got you. Right? You're sweating. I got the handkerchief. Let me dab you off. Right? Right? It's what you do. Right? It's what the best man does. I'm here to straighten your tie. Make sure you look good and make sure mine's not straight. So then the pictures, you look good and I don't. Right? Right? I'm here to talk you up, make you look good, celebrate you. That's the job. And why does the friend or the best man do that? Well, first of all, because he cares and loves the, the groom. But, but also because the best man and the friends understand that the wedding is about the groom and his bride. It's not about the best man. It's not about the friends who are coming in attendance. And so here is John the Baptist, and he's saying, guys, I've told you this time and time and time again. I am not the groom. This is not my story. This wedding is not my wedding. This is a a story about God and his people. It's a story about his plan to come and save us. I'm in need of saving too. You know this story, right? That's what he's saying. You you know these promises because they're all over the Old Testament. You know about this wedding. It's been prophesied. And look now, look with me, the guy that you're pointing to, the guy that you're trying to draw my attention to, let me draw your attention to him again. This man over there, that Jesus, he's the groom that we've been waiting for. And I'm here to point you and to point others to him, to elevate him. And in that, he says, I love this, and in that, he says, my joy is full. This is what John is saying. You see that this morning. John's ministry was not about making his name great or increasing his place in the divine story. It was about pointing to the supremacy of the Savior. It was about pointing to the greatness, pointing to the goodness of the man, Jesus Christ. John here, he's displaying for us this incredible amount of humility. John is so humble. He had, let's not forget, he had a thriving ministry, a growing ministry. He was famous amongst the Jews. But when the groom showed up on the scene and started to take the spotlight, John didn't get upset like his followers did. He didn't get envious. He didn't try to come up with a plan to take some glory back. He didn't say even, wait a minute, like, what about me? Like, what's my standing now? What's my position? What do I get out of this deal? After all I've done for you, Jesus, like, what's in this for me now? He just says, make way, the groom is here. He steps back behind the curtain. Make way, the groom is here. And you know, in that, there's such a great lesson for us. Because isn't it interesting, as I was studying this text, it's just hit me. Isn't it interesting, we see here that John's disciples have all this ambition, actually. They're they're, they're making effort. Like, they they have a desire to see, actually, the kingdom grow. They, They believe that, at least, right? There's this desire and ambition, but they lack joy. All the ambition, no joy. And why is that? Why? Well, it's because their ambition was selfish. Their, their ambition was self-centered. Which means, which means, in effect, that their joy was always based on results. Their joy was always dictated by their circumstances. See, we have to know this about joy. Happiness, contentment, joy can always be had. You can have it. You can grasp it. You can accomplish joy for a season, but, but on your own, it can also be taken away when our ambition revolves around ourselves. But if we're like John and our purpose, our ambition, our joy is wrapped up not in our own advancement and not in our own self-promotion and not in our own exaltation, but in the exaltation of the Supreme Savior, our joy will not only be certain, but it also can be full. It's really good news for us. 
right? Please don't miss that today. Don't miss, don't miss what John is actually able to utter out of his mouth here. I stopped at this verse, those words for a long time. Hard for me to get past. John is able to say something so profound here. He's able to say something that you and I all long for, all hope for, all desire with every fiber of our beings. We want this. John says to his disciples, my joy is now complete. Fullness of joy. I don't lack an ounce of joy. I am totally content, satisfied, happy. It's incredible. I have total joy, he says, when Jesus is lifted up. I have total joy when I, I see. My joy is now complete because I can see people coming to follow him, people coming to know him, and knowing that I was invited to be part of that story, which is why John says these incredible words to his disciples in verse 30, words that most of us have heard. Maybe it's on a sticker in your, or a bumper sticker. He says, he must, Jesus, he must increase but I must decrease. There it is. It's as simple as that, really. That's the aim. That's the goal. And so, that must be the posture of our hearts as well. As followers of Jesus, this here, is it still on the screen? There it is, yeah, good. This here is our vision. It's this. This is what we're after. This is what we're trying to accomplish. And it's so countercultural, isn't it? Isn't it? It's so counter to the world. Our job is not to increase, but to decrease. Our lives are not about making ourselves great, but about making Jesus great. Amen? And here's the amazing promise that comes along with this. When we decrease and lift high the name of Jesus, true and lasting joy can be found, just like with John the Baptist. When we choose to put King Jesus on the throne, true and lasting life can and will be found. And why, why? It's actually really simple for us today because you and I are not meant, we are not created to rule over our own lives. We're not. We make really bad rulers of our own hearts. We make really bad kings and queens over our lives. Listen, you, are, you and I are not designed by God to sit on the throne of our own lives. No, no, we are, we are designed to follow the king. We are made to stay in his presence, to allow him to rule and reign over our hearts, trusting that because he created us, that because he, first, he so loved the broken world, trusting that, trusting that, we know he knows what's best for us. And, and because he knows what's best, he will therefore always lead us down the path of flourishing. When Jesus increases in my life, and when I decrease in my life, God gets glory, but I get joy. And we all want joy. And so, so, how do we then go about accomplishing this? Humility. How do we live this out? How do we obtain this kind of uh, deep-rooted humility that's lasting? Well, I think John the Baptist has already shown us. Uh, he has given us the primary way to get humility. But then I also believe he shows us how to maintain humility as well. And I think sometimes that's even harder to do. How do we hold on to humility? And so I'll just show you three quick points with this and then we'll be done. The plane will be landed for today. So let me show this to you. How to get humility and how to maintain humility. First of all, we obtain humility from understanding who God is. I feel like... Um, Every couple weeks when I'm preparing and meditating on God's word and preparing a message for all of you, I come back to this point. 
someday I'll go through all of my notes and manuscripts over the years. And I wouldn't be surprised if the answer to a quarter of the questions that I ask comes back to understanding who God is. If you've been at Freedom Village for two months and you haven't heard me say this, it's coming next week, but here it is again, okay? Um, I think everything is rooted here. Um, Humility as well. Let me show that to you. Remember once again how John replied to his disciples. He, he, He told them, we can receive nothing unless it has been given to us from heaven, right? That's what he said. He said, every gift we have, all the success that we've accomplished, our position, our fame, our standing in society, he tells them, it's all from the Lord. It's all been given. The point again being that God is over and above all things. He's supreme. That's what he's saying. And so, we learn here that, that John very clearly understood that God is sovereign, that, that he alone reigns on high, and, and therefore, God is the only one who is worthy of praise. And so, and so similarly, when you and I understand that, truly understand that, it actually becomes really easy to say, I must decrease. It's hard in the front. But it's easy when you really meditate on the person and work of Jesus Christ. Because we really, we realize that we actually do deserve nothing. Because we haven't earned anything that wasn't from God. If you believe that everything that you have today is from God, what do you have to boast about? What do you have to brag about? Not much. All the credit and glory and honor belongs to him. John says in verse 31, to sort of put a kind of a a stamp on this, right? He says this. He says, he who comes from above is above all, and he who is of the earth belongs to the earth and speaks in an earthly way. He who comes from heaven is above all. It's kind of wordy. What is he saying? What we're actually seeing here is the difference, the contrast between Jesus' life and ministry and John the Baptist's life and ministry. This here, it's a contrast of not only their origin, not only their nature, but also their greatness, their position, their authority. And it's very clear, this is saying John, right, and this makes sense, it's saying John is from the earth, and Jesus comes from heaven. So John belongs to the earth while Jesus belongs to the kingdom. And therefore, Jesus is above all things. And John is not. It's him and him alone, Jesus and Jesus alone, who is great. But this also means that John understood that his work and his ministry was limited, that there were limitations to his ministry. It's limited to earthly things, is what he's saying. My ministry, our ministry, saying, is is limited to earthly wisdom. All the wisdom that we get that's true is from God. Otherwise, we're just relying on ourselves. Because that's where we're from. We're from the earth. So John cannot reveal the wisdom from heaven. The scriptures tell us that only Jesus can do that. John, the Baptist, cannot give new birth. He could not make anyone born again or bring about transformation and renewal in a person's heart and life. Again, only Jesus Christ can can do that. John could not give the gift of the Holy Spirit. Notice the contrast. He could baptize with water, but Jesus not only baptized with water, we're told he also baptized with the Holy Spirit. So over and over and over again, we see there's this fundamental contrast between what John can do, and by the way, a contrast between what you and I can do, this includes us, and what Jesus can do. Jesus is the only one who deserves honor and praise. He is alone from above. And then in verses 32 through 36, 
John the Baptist just keeps giving us reason why Jesus deserves to increase in our lives. And there's just no time to go through all of this. But John says, essentially to sum up that section, John says, Jesus alone is able to make God fully known. Because if you've seen Jesus, you've seen God. John tells us that Jesus' testimony is always faithful there in that text. John says that when Jesus speaks, he he speaks with the words of God perfectly. That in Christ is the fullness of the Holy Spirit. He tells us uh, that Jesus is God, which gives us full assurance that his work is secure and guaranteed. He will succeed, in other words. And his work is complete. The work of Christ is, is never lacking. It lacks nothing. And if that is not enough... John tells us that Jesus has authority like no one else. He comes to us out of love. We were just told that. But he also comes to us with all power and authority. John said to his disciples, I am not the Christ. He is. So you see, it's it's actually really obvious. Jesus deserves to increase. He deserves to increase in your life today. None of these things that apply to Jesus are true of John. And none of these things that apply to Jesus here in their text this morning apply to any of us. And therefore, he alone deserves to increase. I, I deserve to decrease. I hope this makes sense. I I prayed (laughs) this morning that this is as clear to you as it is for me. Uh, teaching up here. I was so convicted uh, with this text. I almost didn't want to preach it. I almost gave it to Pastor Levi or something. Like, you just take this. This is so hard. When I, when I, <laughs> when I wrap my mind around the reality, when I wrap my mind around the reality that, that Jesus came down from heaven as God in the flesh, that he came to to take away my sins, that he came to give me eternal life, that he came to me because he he loves me. When, When my mind and when my heart can actually see that, I just found even... Once again, last night, my my heart just so naturally, there was no force, there was no push, there was no obligation, actually. My heart just so naturally started to turn towards the same declaration that we read here with John the Baptist. My heart just started to cry out, Jesus, Jesus, you must increase. You must It must be so. You must increase in my life. Jesus, you must increase in my city. You must increase in this gathering. You must increase. Your your name deserves, it, it deserves to be famous amongst the nations. Jesus, who am I before you? Literally, my my face is on my mattress. Who am I? God, please. I I just begged him for forgiveness. Because he knows my heart. Please, forgive me. That I so often, gosh, so often desire to see my name be made great. Forgive me, God, that I want to actually, how, how can I even utter these words to you? I actually want to take glory away from Jesus. I want his glory for myself. God, again, please, you must increase. I must decrease. Please help me to understand once again who you are and who I am before you. Please increase in my life. Listen, humility comes. Our hearts will naturally bow down when we understand who God is. All things are from him. He alone is supreme. He alone is the Christ. So we obtain a heart of humility 
when you and I understand God's greatness, who he is. But then the question is, how do we actually maintain that humility? How do we keep this posture of humility going in our lives again and again? Because that's certainly not easy. I mean, yes, keep reminding yourself who God is and you'll go back there, but I think there's more to this. Because you might be humble for a day. You might be humble in your 30-minute prayer. But how do you keep it going? So the first thing I'll say is that humility is maintained when we keep the right understanding of success. We need a hard adjustment with this because society pushes us the opposite direction in every area. (laughs) doesn't matter your job. John's disciples were concerned because the number of their followers were going down. They're concerned. While the number of people who started to follow Jesus was going up, right? That's what we saw. And in that as well, we see John didn't seem to be doing anything to correct the situation. Right? There's like, you can imagine like, you know, these, follow, these people are like walking down the street and you got to choose, right? There's two paths. Do you go to John the Baptist and be baptized and listen to his teaching or, or Jesus? Right? You don't see like John the Baptist out there with like the spinny sign, right? Come over here, right? right? We got better stuff, right? For you over here. There's no, there's no competitive spirit. But when they talk to John about their concerns, he shockingly explains that their cause for concern was actually his cause for great joy. (laughs) What they were so stressed about actually brought John great peace. The contrast. And, And so what we see in this is that John was never about building a follower, following for John. He was always about building a following for Jesus. So simple, but so important for us today. Success for John was seeing Jesus succeed, period. Success for John was seeing the kingdom expand and grow. It was not about his own kingdom. And so in life, here's where we kind of rein things in, and now I ask you the question. In life, how do you define success? And beyond that, how much of your definition of success has to do with you? It's a great question to ask yourself. But it's also, I think, really convicting when you ask it in that way. When you think about being successful in this life, I'm not talking even just like full-time ministry. I can apply this to myself. Don't worry. The knife has been in and twisted many times. Okay? I'm talking about in your own life, whatever business, career, doesn't matter, college student right now, teacher, whatever. When you think about being successful in this life, when you define that for yourself, how much of that definition has to do with you? And is Jesus in your definition? See, for John, success was about exalting the name of Christ. It was about being faithful. It was about living his life on mission. Success was, have I pointed someone to Jesus today? Have I made Jesus' name famous or known or have I exalted his name today? That's success. And our purpose and mission is meant to be the same. This is not the purpose, mission, and vision for the religious elite. It's not for the the seminary trained. It's not for the person, it is for the person, but not just for the person who's holding the microphone talking to you about it. It's for all of us. Our purpose and mission is the same. Regardless of who you are here in this room, watching online, regardless of your career, the end goal is the same. And whatever we do, we are meant to, commanded to, glorify God. 
to exalt Christ and to help others do the same. Period. Glorify God. Exalt the name of Jesus. Worship his name. Magnify his name. Christ be magnified. By the way, we didn't even talk about that. Sitting over there thinking, oh God, you know, uh, it's not. You're not magnified in me, right? That's what this is about. That's our purpose. Christ, be magnified in me. And help me, help me to magnify your name to others. That's success. That's true success. That's kingdom success. And then finally, I believe humility is maintained. This is somewhat of a tougher pill to swallow. It's maintained when we understand our role in God's plan is temporary. When we understand that our role in God's plan is temporary, you could also say that we are temporary or our time is limited. I told you I'd refer back to that little detail, those parentheses. I had to do something with it. It's there and I'm like, this is just an added detail. I'll do something with it. So here it is. I thought more about that little detail in the parentheses, that little timestamp that our writer John gives us about John not yet being in prison. It's very interesting because it actually made me think, here's this great man, successful, John the Baptist. It was said about him, Jesus, well, it was said about him when he was in the mother's womb He was full of the Holy Spirit. It's pretty incredible. Jesus even says about John, imagine Jesus saying this about anyone in this room. Can you imagine? Jesus comes on the scene, he says, hey, that guy over there, John, there has never, ever been a human being born of a woman who is greater than him. It's a pretty strong statement, right? And John still is humble, right? If Jesus said that about me, like, that would be like, <laughs> be like the pinned at my newsfeed, right? All the time, right? Right? No one greater. Jesus said that. I'm not saying that. Jesus said that. And so, imagine now, John the Baptist grows up. He, he lives this really righteous, holy, set-apart life. He chooses to do that. Lives mostly in isolation. He loves God. Loves God. And then he starts preaching and teaching people. And people are hungry for what he's saying. And they keep coming. And he's telling them, I'm not the light, but I'm here to point to the light. He tells people, the Savior is coming, and his ministry is growing, he's baptizing people. He's saying, redemption is coming. Turn your eyes on Jesus, look to Jesus. And people, people are following, masses, crowds are coming around him. He becomes this well-known, again, we've said this, this well-known name. And then, though, after just this very short, short, maybe as a year, maybe two at the most, this very short season of teaching, Jesus then comes on the scene and takes all the glory. Hey, John, thanks for setting the table for me. It's like the tea ball, you know? If you've ever seen tea ball, you know, you set the ball on the tea, it does all the work, it just sits there. All you have to do is hit it, right? John the Baptist sets the tea for Jesus. Here it is. There it is. Jesus just comes in. Bam, right? Thanks for doing all the work. Now I'm here. That's me. He talked about it. He he preached the gospel. Now I'm here. And now I'm going to start baptizing all the people that you pointed to. Can you imagine? And then what happens? John steps back. He gets in the background. And then very subtly, we don't see this. It's almost like, like the stars when the sun is rising. It just slowly fades. But we don't really talk about this much with John the Baptist. Do you know what happens after John the Baptist shortly after this? He's arrested. But not only that, he's arrested. He's stuck in prison for a, quite a lengthy season. And then you know what? Jesus doesn't let him get out. Doors don't open. You know what happens to John the Baptist? His head gets cut off. Served on a platter. It just made me think, even the greatest people, their lives are so temporary. John was here 
lived faithfully, preached the gospel with joy, and then he was gone. That's it. His job was done. John died in his early 30s. Maybe he was 30, 31, 32 at the most. And guess what? This great man, greatest man who ever lived, died. And you know what happened? Everything collapsed. The, the church fell apart. No. The work of the gospel and the kingdom continued. The gospel was preached the very next day and the day after that. It didn't stop with John, and it will not stop with any of us. And that is very humbling. We aren't guaranteed long lives. You need to know that. We're not. And we are not guaranteed impressive results. Not from a worldly standpoint. The Lord could take, even me, I was thinking about this this morning. The Lord could take me out of the picture today. Today, as I'm going back home, something could happen. You know what? His work would go right on. It would move forward according to his plan. He owes us nothing. And listen, it is our great joy if he chooses to use us in some way to exalt Christ and to bring others to exalt Christ as well. So today, I just want to close by saying this. Here's the thing about humility. If you and I are growing in humility, if you and I are growing in humility, then Christ is increasing and we are decreasing. But if you and I are growing in pride, that always means that we are increasing and Christ is decreasing. So the question, again, to leave us with today is this. What characterizes, what defines your life? What's your life about? Think about that. Don't, don't leave here today. Don't go to sleep tonight without being able to answer that question for yourself. Maybe a better question. Ask yourself this question, truly. Deep, find, find a minute to get alone and ask yourself this question. Who is my life about? How do you see success in this life? What's your aim today? What's your goal? Let me encourage you, make your aim to grow in humility by understanding deeply, truly who Jesus is and by knowing all that he has done for you. For when you see him, when you behold him, all that you are and all that you have will just naturally down bow, bow down before him. And like John the Baptist, you will say, he must increase, and I must decrease. Amen? Let me pray for you.